0: Welcome to the fourth Frontline Gastroenterology podcast of 2015 related to the FG Twitch debate on Tuesday the 14th of April 2015 entitled Frontline Nutrition and Management of Intestinal Failure. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology registrar in London. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Simon Gabe, consultant gastroenterologist an intestinal failure specialist at St. Mark's Hospital London. Dr. Gabe co chairs the nationally commissioned intestinal failure service at St. Mark's, one of two centres in the UK currently funded to provide this service. Dr. Gabe has a wide clinical experience in the management of intestinal failure, clinical nutrition, home parental nutrition, and consideration of intestinal transplantation. He co-founded the National Adult Small Intestinal Transplant Forum together with Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge, and has an honorary contract at Adam Brooks as a visiting specialist. His academic and research interests include nutrition, parental and enteral nutrition and intestinal failure, and also in enterocutaneous fistula, home parental nutrition, particularly survival and growth factors, intestinal transplantation, and intestinal tissue engineering. Dr. Gabe has been actively involved in BAPEN, British Association of Parental and Natural Nutrition, having been Honorary Treasurer, Executive Officer, Chair of BAPEN Regional Representatives, as well as Treasurer of BAPEN Medical. He's now President-elect of BAPEN. Dr. Gabe, thank you very much for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate, in which you've included a number of slides. A summary of the Twitter debate will be available on the FG website also but these slides will also be available with a link next to this podcast. During Twitter debate, we focused broadly on the management of intestinal failure. So, up Gabe, for those of our listeners who do not deal with intestinal failure on a daily basis, can you briefly explain what intestinal failure is and how to identify it, and also explain the different subtypes of intestinal failure?
1: Yes, of course. Intestinal failure can be defined maybe as the uh, reduction of the gut function to below the minimum necessary for the absorption of macronutrients and water and electrolytes. And that's a rather long-winded way of saying that when the gut doesn't work sufficiently for you to be able to absorb either your nutrition or your fluids, and you need parental support, then that's when the gut is defined as failing. Intestinal failure exists. And there are three different types that we tend to use. It's separated out into types 1, 2, and 3. Type 1 is a short term, which everyone gets after a simple operation on the abdomen, which is normally used called an ileus. We can normally, if you want, weather the storm and don't really need much in the way of intervention. With type 2, it's more medium term. It's something's happened in the gut. It might be that there's abdominal sepsis or there's a fistula developed or an abscess, and then the patient needs to have some form of parental support, maybe fluids, maybe nutrition. With type 3, it's much more long-term and, for many patients, indefinite for the uh, different types of intestinal failure. And there are three main causes that are probably worth mentioning. The commonest cause that we get nowadays is actually as a result of surgical complications. Increasing, we've got uh, mesenteric infarction and in the background there's Crohn's disease and those are the three main causes for this problem to occur in patients.
0: Okay, Thank you very much um, for that excellent summary. With, With this in mind then, what are the broader aims of intestinal failure management? And for example, you discussed the approach to intestinal failure from maximizing GI function through to transplantation. Can you briefly for our listeners just expand upon this, this further? Well, the
1: broad aims of managing a patient with intestinal failure go right from something very simple like assessing fluid balance, working out nutrition balance, and it's worth bringing out that fluid balance and nutrition balance are just as important as each other in the management of uh, patients with intestinal failure. It's really important to understand the patient's intestinal anatomy, whether they've got any bowel that can be used, that could be optimized in any way, and maximizing their GI function. Then, effectively, what you've got to do is establish them on some form of parental nutrition, and get them on to get the balances right with the amount of fluid and nutrition you're giving for that patient. It's worth working out what, which type of central venous line is worth placing for these patients to receive the fluid and nutrition that they have. Often, uh, PIC lines, which are peripherally inc- inserted, uh, can be used. These can be quite useful, but if you've got a patient who's training to be able to do it themselves, then it's much better for them to have a tunneled central venous catheter that comes out on the chest wall. When the patient's in a much more stable state, then you've got them established on intravenous nutrition, and that's when it's appropriate really to train them if they are going to be independent in managing their parenteral nutrition. We will aim to get them home, and then once they're home, you've got to monitor and look after them and look out for complications that might occur, be they liver complications or line complications or infective complications. And in the
0: background,
1: the only other bit is that if they have got some form of surgery that's required at some point in time, either to bring bowel into continuity or to repair a leak, for example, then that's planned out and the timing of that is worked out together with the surgeon. All of this requires a very multidisciplinary re- approach. This isn't something that a doctor can do on his own. This isn't something that the nurse or the dietitian can do on their own. It's a team approach with nurses, physicians, dietitians, and doctors, all just as important as, e- as each other.
0: Within the within the debate, you uh, briefly t- talked about intestinal transplantation, which is an area that I know interests a lot of people. Um, Can you briefly explain what are the indications you use clinically to decide on this course of action for a patient and also what are the implications of this treatment for the patient in terms of uh, ongoing morbidity or indeed mortality in the UK at the moment? Intestinal
1: transplantation for patients with intestinal failure is a really difficult question it's often termed as an emerging area, it's emerged, it exists, it's certainly a management option for patients. And the reason why it's so difficult is that you do have patients who are established on the system who may well be very stable and you have to work out whether it's in their interests to undertake a significant risk. And the significant risk is obviously to have the transplant to undergo major surgery and then to run a whole load of risks about infection and and rejection. And I often describe this to patients as exchanging one set of problems for another set of problems. It's often perceived that they'll get rid of the problems that they have because they won't have a line and they'll have a new bit of bowel. But of course, they'll have a new set of problems that might relate to rejection and the fear of rejection, for example. The indications, however, are at the moment still predominantly when you've got irreversible intestinal failure and you've got a, a set of complications that have occurred. It's not just that you have stable disease, uh, you're in a stable state, but you've got complications. Now, the definite complication would be liver disease. For patients who have progressive fibrotic liver disease, then for sure those patients. Uh, really should be referred and considered for transplantation the patients who are getting loss of venous access is a serious concern uh, because these things happen it happens can happen sporadically but when you lose too much access it even becomes too difficult to do the transplant so when you've lost a few of your major veins then those patients can be considered and are considered for transplants. Another group would be patients who have severe sepsis um, and recurrent sepsis, despite best, best um, techniques and everything being thought about in trying to minimize the septic events for patients. Those patients are certainly being considered for transplantation. And there's a group where we don't really know the right answer for. And that's a group who've got poor quality of life on home parental nutrition with intestinal failure. They find their life is unacceptably poor. And the crucial bit is that in some way that that is correctable by, by transplantation. Of course, it's not always possible to know whether it, that is true. But for some patients, uh, there are nowadays uh, patients being transplanted for simply quality of life reasons, rather than for complication reasons. Those four groups that I've just described are the key groups for patients who have irreversible intestinal failure. There are a couple of other situations where intestinal transplantation is also considered. And an example would be a patient who's got a large desmoid tumor for example a very slow growing tumor that doesn't metastasize that is obstructing the abdominal organs and needs to have that removed and that will eviscerate their small bowel bowel, and maybe some other organs too and those patients will uh, be considered for a small bowel if not a modified or, or multidisceral transplant and sometimes there are patients also in the final group who need, uh, for example, a kidney, another abdominal organ who have got a short bowel, and those patients can be considered for, for example, a renal and small bowel transplant and those are the groups that are thought about overall for transplantation, as I mentioned before the, uh, it is difficult to weigh up the pros and cons for patients who have a transplant and Uh, It's not all just about survival. And survival rates can be described to patients. And sometimes um, a 60% five-year survival rate is described after an intestinal transplant. There's a lot of variation in fairness. uh, And I think it's very difficult to describe the patients, what that really means. A lot of them take away... Even though you say 60% five-year survival, many push, patients take away that they've got five years to live, and um, it's hard to bring over the real balance of risk um, about whether they keep with the status quo or make a make a jump, and the jump is to have a transplant. Some do well, and and uh, and when they do well, it is really fantastic to see, and so should be considered for patients.
0: Thank you, Dr. Gabor. It's certainly very, very interesting area of um, clinical nutrition. Um, within the uh, Twitter debate, um, and a lot of our listeners will be in this situation, um, you briefly touched upon what your advice or top tips would be for an aspiring nutrition specialist um, or general gastroenterologist who manages patients from time to time of intestinal failure. What, were, what would be your top tips for our listeners?
1: So the top tips for a, an aspiring gastroenterologist, I think, will be to work well with an NDT to in, make sure you've got good communication skills. I think that is a, that is a general rule anyway in medicine nowadays. But uh, it's especially true for uh, working well within a large nutrition team. If you've got a patient with intestinal failure, one of the best things you can do is really understand their intestinal anatomy. Often, people don't really understand what's connected to what. And it might sound really very straightforward, but it's often not really thought about in in much detail. If there are bits of owl that haven't been used or optimized one way or another, then they can be used, and that can make a big difference. Uh, And those are some of the key bits. Some of the commonest mistakes, though, for patients with intestinal failure are uh, that an ileostomy, is actually a jejunostomy so calling bits of anatomy the right things are really important
0: thank you so finally how how do you see uh, the management of intestinal failure developing in the next 10 15 years time we've seen the likes of uh, the growth factors um come through where where do you now see the major advances uh, develop uh, coming from
1: the We've talked about already intestinal transplantation, which will continue, and as survival rates will continue to improve, immunosuppressive regimes improve, it will become an earlier option for patients. I have no doubt about that. But the new kid on the block that is um, that is out there relates to intestinal growth factors. The um, the one licensed new drug that is out there is called tedeblutide, and It is a GLP-2, glucagon-like peptide-2 analog. It increases the surface area of small bowel. It doesn't change the length of small bowel, but it has been shown in good randomized controlled trials to decrease parenteral nutritional requirements for patients and get patients off intravenous nutrition. I certainly have two patients on it, and one is off parenteral nutrition and the other has halved his requirements. It's a life changer. It's a game changer in this area. Its exact place, its exact position, when to use it is still to be decided. But this and other factors like this will be emerging. This is the beginning of a new area of development in terms of medical therapies for these patients. And I think this will really start to change the field. It will obviously then, if it starts to take out, then affect the patients who have a transplant. And we shall see how this this develops over time, but it is certainly a a good area of development. The final bit really is, I think in the next 10 years, that there'll be some aspects that relate to organ regeneration, tissue engineering. These are things that uh, at the moment are happening in the laboratory. But I would hope that would start to go into the human population um, in that time frame.
0: Well, thank you once again, Dr. Gave, for your fantastic contribution and your support uh, with both the FG debate and this and this podcast. We're very grateful. The slides from the Twitter debate will be available to look at next. to The link for the podcast. The next FG Twitter debate is our special DDW Twitter debate with Professor. Edward Loftus, Professor of Gastroenterology and IBD at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, USA on Monday the 11th of May 2015 at 9 to 10pm GMT and we'll discuss Frontline IBD, Hot top Topics in IBD. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag FGDebate.